Last week, Tony spoke to the men, right? So it's true, we are proving today the old adage that women get the last word. I do want to say, we have Lady Sunday just because uh, it started a long time ago. Um, someone suggested it after a youth Sunday because we like to hear from some of our, our wise and seasoned women, some of, some of them young, some of them old. Um, this isn't a feminist statement, you guys. Um, this isn't like, uh, you know, women need their place. They do have their place in the kingdom of God. And we're not trying to make any kind of uh, statement in that regard. We're just saying the body of Christ needs to hear from both men and women. We can prove that biblically to you, but not today. But if you have questions, come talk to us. Uh, by the way, I'm Rachel Howick, for those of you who don't know me. Um, our first speaker is going to be Eileen Hinckley. Um, I love Eileen. I was going to say Eileen. That's not right. Um, but this is her bio, and then I'll give you my version of her. She's 56 years young. Amen. Um, she was born and raised and lived in central Maine for 52 years until she and her husband, Bob, that most of us know, transplanted down here. Um, Bob is working up north for maybe one more year, and then we get him full-time, and we love Bob because he's a great drummer, a great guitar player, and a great brother in the Lord. She has three wonderful adult children, Chris, Ariel, who whoop, is back there, and uh, Tyler, and she has one grandson, Jeremiah. So I will say this about Eileen. Since she and Bob came, they have been super, super faithful. Ariel has been faithful. Eileen is faithful to serve in the nursery, which, by the way, Brandy and Eileen were both supposed to be in the nursery today, so I stole them all for you guys, so you'll be blessed. Um, but she is really faithful in the place of prayer, and I really appreciate that about her. She's one of our Tuesday and Thursday morning staples. And I don't think you've ever prayed out loud but once, Eileen. But I know that she's praying and she's writing things down and she's hearing things from the Lord. She's just a good sister in the Lord. So please welcome Eileen and open your hearts to what God would have to say through her this morning. I'm going to stay up here and pray for all of us and then we don't have to do that every single time. Lord, thank you so much for Eileen for her courage to come up here and do this. I know that you are with her this morning. The scripture verse on you version was be strong and courageous. And so we just thank you that you have given us everything we need to do this calling that you have for us. Lord, just open our hearts and minds to the words that you're going to speak through her and Brandy and me today. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen, amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Well, when Rachel first messaged me, I was working in the food pantry, and she asked me to pray about it, um, coming up here and speaking in front of you. And I'm like, okay, I'll pray. And as soon as I get off the phone, I'm like, no way. <laughs> nope. See how far that went. I went to the kitchen to get my cup of coffee, and God... He, he kind of talks to me kind of strange sometimes and kind of funny. It's like I walk in and he's like got his hand on his hip and he goes, oh, really? You're not going to give me the glory after you tell me you want to do what, you want, what I want you to do? So then I go, I'd be honored. <laughs> so um, the message that he gave me is, what is your true identity? How God sees yourself, no, how you see yourself versus how God sees you. Now, I don't know everybody here. It's only been four years, and I still don't know everybody. Um, but I have a feeling that everybody at one time or another 
has seen themselves in awe, strange ways, definitely not how God sees us. And some of the examples I came up with is, well, God must really love that person. Look how spiritual they are. Or he could never use me. Nobody knows what I've done. He does, he does, nobody else knows, and I'm going to hide it. Um, I'm too young. God, I'm, I'm just I'm too young. I, I can't do that. You know, that could be either age or that can even be spiritually. You might have only been saved a week, but God can still use you. Amen. And uh, not pretty enough, smart enough. You know, I could go on and on, but I think you kind of get the gist of what I'm saying. So, do you honestly think that the people in the Bible didn't have those same kind of feelings and insecurities? I'm feeling loud. I think he, I think he, they did, and I kind of can prove it a little bit. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go back to the Old Testament for a few people and then a couple of New Testament people. So I'm going to look at Moses. He was, you know, not exactly our first murderer, but he was a murderer. You can see that in Exodus where he murdered a, an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew brother. But at the same time, uh, after his little process, he said, um, sorry. he was fearful. When God asked him to do something, he's like, God, I can't do that. I can't do that. I stutter. You know, I can't. But in Exodus 4, 10 through 12, he said, but Moses pleaded with the Lord, oh Lord, I am not very good with words. I never have been, and I am not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether to speak or not to speak? Hear or do not hear? See or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you to what to say. So what Moses saw was so many inadequacies and insecurities, but what God saw was a leader. Amen. And we're not going to stop there. We're going to talk about Gideon for a moment. His clan was the weakest, and Gideon was the youngest in his family. So when he was approached, he said to him, Oh, my Lord, in uh, Judges 6.15, sorry, he said to him, oh, Lord, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So what he saw, what Gideon saw in his own eyes, he was too weak, and what God saw was a mighty man of valor, just as he said in Judges 6.12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And then we're going to go to Jeremiah. He thought he was way too young to speak. I mean, after all, he was only, what, 17? Um, he says in uh, Jeremiah 1.6, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I can't speak, for I am a youth. Uh, and then what did God say? He said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet of the nations. So what Jeremiah saw as not being old enough or wise enough, God said as a mighty prophet. Amen. Amen. So that was just a few of the Old Testament. Um, I'm trying not to speed through, but I need to keep my time here. Uh, so I'm um, going to look at a couple of the New Testament. 
we're going to look at the uh, nameless centurion. He was a Roman officer. He had a lot of power, a lot of authority. But he felt unworthy to have Jesus come to him to heal his servant. In Luke 7, 6 and 7, he said, uh, or the word said, Jesus went with them, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. Wow, that's, that's quite, a, quite a noble thing right there. And how did Jesus react in verse 9? So when Jesus heard this, he turned and said, uh, he was amazed, turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this at all in Israel. So what this man of authority felt unworthy, Jesus saw him as a man of great faith. Amen. And I want to take one more person, um, the uh, sinful woman, which most likely meant she was a prostitute. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, she saw herself as worthless and rejected, but Jesus saw her humble and full of so much love. In Luke 7, 44 to 47, he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to dust the, uh, wash the dust off my feet but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of the olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who forgives little shows only a little bit of love. That really spoke to my heart. I was like, she just so much love and, and repentance. She did not feel worthy. There's so many more stories like that in the Bible. But as we look at ourselves, I really feel our object, our, my personally objective is going to be to ask the Lord for the ability to see through God's eyes and not through our own. We can choose to bring life or death. It is a choice. It's, it's, it really is. And Proverbs 18.21, which I took from the Passion Translation, um, your words, all of us, all of our words are so powerful that they will kill or give life. And the talkative person will reap the consequences. That said so much to me, it's like, Sometimes we do speak things, even if it's in a joke or just jesting or just being critical of somebody else or ourselves. Every time we put ourselves or someone else down, even in, like I said, in jest, we're bringing death to that person's self-worth. And, newsflash, it's an insult to God because he created us. I personally don't want to insult God. I don't know about you. And as I wrap this up, it's my desire for us to all do what the author in Hebrews 10.24 says. Discover creative ways to encourage others and to motivate them act toward acts of compassion 
doing beautiful works as an expression of love. Thank you. Oh, you're going to watch me fall backwards. That was awesome, wasn't it, you guys? I know that I've been on a journey for, what, like 25 years on the power of words, you know, and, and the effectiveness of our words and what we say and what we do, even in jesting, because it's in the condition of our hearts as well. So next up, we have the beautiful Brandy, after the beautiful Eileen. <laughs> you, did, you did not send me your bio, so I'm going to bio for you. I know. <laughs> Brandy's like in her 40s. <laughs> I was actually, um, Tony and I were actually at Brandy and Aaron's wedding, so we've um, been with you since the beginning, since we sent Aaron up to Poughkeepsie to bring us a first-round draft pick, and he did really well. So, Brandy, um, gosh, you're, you're amazing. She runs, she homeschools her kids, she is always constantly going after the things of God, examining her own heart trying to become a godly woman and be a godly mom and be a godly example to all of us. She recently started working in the church office as a secretary. Um, I just think she is a light to us. You guys know her from the foyer. She's always out there greeting people. And she is a powerful woman of God that we're blessed to have in our midst. So come on up, Brandy. Woohoo! She also didn't want to do this, but I kind of, kind of made her. I didn't. I actually was going to call her last night and be like, um, I'm not doing this. I really felt like I had an out too, but Aaron told me I didn't. In a nice way, he was really kind. I want to say, Eileen, where are you? I don't see you. There you are. Um, I just love that you are taking that word too, like... You, I, I feel like I'm seeing you finding your place in the kingdom and really like taking hold of that. So that's just really awesome. So I like titles, like, like catchy titles of um, sermons, like yours, mail call last week. So I couldn't really land on one. It was like feasting as an act of war, theology of feasting, fruits of the spirits as weapons of war, food fight. I don't know. I couldn't find one. So it's kind of a Sunday morning choose-your-own-adventure. So I was going to read some titles of world news, but if you guys don't live under a rock, which I know you don't, you know that um, it's evident with what we're seeing in the world that we live in a world occupied by the enemy. We don't even really need to look at that. We can see it in our own communities, our own lives. just internally, even the accusation of the enemy day and night by name could be the accusation of others. Um, just these things are all around us. So much is just um, fractioning us and, and pulling on us. At the end of the day, we're spent. We have, we have nothing to give sometimes. And this is the way of the world today. Um, in contrast, I was listening to this podcast and it was talking about Archibald Hart, who I've never heard of, I don't know, maybe some of you have, that um, we ascribe to the life of Jesus a modern-day pace, that it said that minus the last 100 years, the pace of life was three miles an hour. Like when you see Jesus go from Jerusalem to Galilee, Galilee, that was probably three days. You know, he didn't go from one dramatic event to the next dramatic event. There was like a a human pace, 
So those are two contrasting things. And in Psalm 1, we see, um, we see the, the contrast of two types of people. It's blessed is the person who isn't distracted, who isn't caught up in the world. They can give their attention to God. Um, he's like a, stream, a tree planted by a stream. He's evergreen. When, when their storm comes, he can still bear fruit. But those who give their attention to the world are blown away by the next storm. They're dried out. Um, and I know that, that, you know that first person that we talked about getting caught up in the world, I know that that's been me talking about, you know, people ask you, how are you doing? I'm busy. I'm busy, 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 busy. It's like a competition of busyness. We can just get so drawn in by that. But abiding in Christ has physical manifestations, which are the fruits of the Spirit. But they're, they're internal. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But they're expressed externally, like you'll know them by their fruits. It's through living, it's through living and interaction with each other that these fruits are expressed. What we do in our humanity affects the spiritual world. The two are intertwined. They can't be disconnected. And I think that as Christians, sometimes we tend to put those things in two different, two different sides. You know, there's the spiritual and there's the physical, but they're all one. They're intertwined. The Word became flesh. Um, God has purpose in our humanness, and He cares about our humanity. In 1 Timothy 6, it says, God, who richly and ceaselessly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Obviously, this is in the context of connection with Him, but... I'll, I'll give you an example that um, God used Disney in, in my family's life to draw us closer to him. So there, there were several years ago that we felt like God gave us permission to save, us, save up um, money to buy Disney passes, which I say he gave us permission because there wasn't any extra. There was no way. I mean, they're expensive. But um, he made a way, and eventually we, we did. We had Disney passes, and God used that time um, as connection with our family, which, which honestly drew us closer to him. We just saw the goodness of God. There was even, well, right before our passes expired, there was even a, a time at Epcot. I won't go into all the details because it, it's long. But anyway, that I went into the bathroom and I cried because I felt like there was this event that was just a kiss from God. And while it doesn't seem to have any eternal value, it really did because... It, it's something that marked me because I, I just felt the goodness of God. It was something that he, very specific, that he was attentive to me and my family. That really wasn't a big deal to anyone else, but it meant something to us. Um, but even you look at food, like God gave us food for our enjoyment. And there's like countless uh, cooking shows. And they talk about the science of bread. And, and if you've ever heard me talk about beets, you will know how much I love food. <laughs> Just beets. They're not my favorite food, but like every time I eat a beet, I, I have to say, mmm, beets. And <laughs> I just, I think because they taste like dirt. So I don't know. I feel like God made them himself. Like, <laughs> I love beets. So funny story. I was at work one day and I was eating beets. And usually I'm at home and I'm eating beets and I say, mmm, beets. And there was no one there to say that to. So I, t I texted my kids and I said, 
I don't know what it is about beets, but every time I eat them, I just want to say, mmm, beets. And Jackson responds, this is how I heard it. I don't know if he said it like that. Maybe you can tell me, but this is how I heard it. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> is that how you said it? <laughs> I know. Ah, yep. So, our enjoyment of food and all the things that God gives us, like the chocolate. <laughs> I loved your, I gave Lori this chocolate. I know she likes Lily's chocolate, so y'all know. Um, I saw it in the, in the store, it was BOGO, and I was like, Lori loves this. And her excitement when I gave it to her, I mean, it was like over the top. It was awesome. I was like, see, we love food. <laughs> so in the context of, of connection with him, obviously, but our enjoyment of life actually brings the kingdom to earth. Um, spiritual fruits are actually weapons of warfare. So let me read part of this essay that kind of spurred on this whole, it's a little, just bear with me. Um, this was written by Andrew Peterson, who's a singer-songwriter. It says, how often do we misunderstand Paul's reminder that our battle is not against flesh and blood? but against the powers and principles of darkness in the heavenly realms. Did Paul mean that flesh and blood don't matter? Not at all. Did he mean that overcoming those forces of darkness only worked in a detached theoretical or mental arena? No. The spiritual forces are at work in a very physical, material manner. Jesus didn't die in a theoretical sense. He literally died with a literal body. His miracles were physical. The world God made has substance, and the evil played out here is just as substantive as it is spiritual. We need to remember that while, we, while the struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, the battlefield where we fight is within the realm of creation itself. God didn't just give us souls. He gave us bodies. He, gave, he didn't just give the idea of family or of sacrifice or kindness. He gave us, gave us wives and children and actual lives to inhabit. We need each other. We need the church. We need to interact with creation. The way we fight back against evil is to embody... I'm sorry. Is to, the way we fight back against evil is to embody the battle with acts of love. We fight back with a tender kiss between a husband and a wife, with the vocalization of God's blessings over our children, the literal laying on of hands, the harvesting of real vegetables like beets. I didn't say that, I added that. The touch and feel of real communion bread and real communion wine. Put your finger here, see my hands. Jesus said to Thomas, reach out your hand and touch it, touch it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. The victory is not just theoretical. It is as real and as touchable as the chair you're sitting in and as physical as Jesus' hunger when he appeared to this, the disciples after the resurrection. We should therefore remember that we don't fight back only with prayer, though prayer is essential. Amen. But faith without works is dead. Sit down with your children and listen to them. Eat them. Uh, eat them. No, don't eat them. <laughs> eat with them. <laughs> Hug them. Because you didn't eat them. Teach, them. teach them to tend a garden, placing your hands in the wounded yet life-giving earth. Stop doubting and believe. Look your daughter in the eye and tell her that she is more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. Muster the courage to show up at church on Sunday. Make your home lovely. 
Commit to the slow work of shaping the world around you so that it looks like your best guess at what the kingdom looks like. Make your word, the words you utter, words of life and not death. <clears throat> and the world will see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. So that's that. So all of that reminds me of Psalm 23, 5, which says, He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemy. So when you really think about that word, there's, in a time of war, you're not pre- no one's preparing a big meal. If you're eating, it's on the go. Like you're just taking something and you're, you know, you're on guard because the enemy's raging. Yet here we see that God says that he has prepared a feast in the presence of our enemies. Resting and, so this, this is a picture of resting and peace, peace I'm sorry, feasting. Um, Feasting is an act of war because it reveals the truth about the authority of Satan. So while we're feasting, Satan's on the outside. He has no authority. It's an act of war. So I'll just sum it up with this last quote that I found by by Graham Cook, which I was like, yes, Graham Cook. I read this after I put this teaching together. So I was like, if I can sum it up with Graham Cook, that's good stuff. So he's... (laughs) In warfare, rest becomes a weapon that we can use on the enemy. The fruits of the Spirit are more powerful, is a more powerful force against the enemy than the gifts. You can defeat the enemy enemy by living in the love of God. You can weary him by your joy. You can depress, depress him with your peace. You can overwhelm him with your patience. You can frustrate him with your kindness. And Graham Cook goes on to say, I love that. <laughs> I do too. Amen. Amen. So go, go take your friends out to eat. And it's a weapon against the enemy. For real though. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I just want to clarify that we do not condone cannibal theology here. <laughs> We're not going to... That was good. I really, really loved that. Um, just how Eileen was drawing us back to getting our identity in Jesus. And the brand reminded me the weapons of our, reminding us, me, the weapons of our warfare. That the fruit of the Spirit is the very thing that wages war against the enemy. And of course, the, ingesting the Word of God, which I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Um, I'm going to, I was going to talk to you. <laughs> about my year and some of this, my summer actually, some of the stuff that I'd walked through this summer was, was a lot of warfare. But um, man, God really brought me out on the other side. But I was reading John 3 the other day and I thought, you know what, There's, I felt there was something on little pieces of John 3. So I'm gonna read for, to you from John chapter three. If you guys wanna turn there, if you do, if not, I will read it for you. But um, this isn't my bailiwick. I'm a storyteller, I'm a cheerleader, rah, 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 let's go for Jesus. Um, you know, fight, 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 win, win, win. If I played football, I would be on the defense because I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to put you in the ground. So I love the defensive. I love being, but we have to be offensive in the Lord as well. So anyway, so kind of walking through this and explaining the scriptures a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but here we go. So John chapter three starts with, have any, how many of you guys have watched any of The Chosen? Yeah, lots of us. Well, we see Nicodemus in the first season of The Chosen where 
He is a prominent Jewish leader, and he comes to Jesus by night to ask him if he's from God. So we start with verse 1 and 2. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's impressed by Jesus. He's impressed by the miracles that Jesus is doing. Hey, way to go, BJ. <laughs> he's impressed by, the, by his teachings, by the things he's doing, and he's kind of throwing Jesus a bone. You're probably from God because nobody else can do these things. And maybe he wonders why he, a great teacher in Israel, is not doing them for himself. And Jesus responds and says, to him, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I think this is a really curious response because he's not asking him about seeing the kingdom. He's asking Jesus, are you from God? But Jesus is telling this great leader of Israel, this esteemed Pharisee, that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a really curious answer to Nicodemus, because that's not what he's asking. Jesus understood that Nicodemus was trusting in his own works and his own achievement, his own statue, status and status, his own statue, maybe he built himself a statue, his own stature and status. He's trusting in his own righteousness. I think Nicodemus is a little curious about Jesus. Maybe at this point he's a little dubious and skeptical. But he would not think that he needed anything else because he was a great teacher of the law. That he obeyed the law, he studied the law, he observed the sacrifices. His sins were supposedly covered by all of the sacrifices. So he's not asking Jesus, what do I have to do to see the kingdom? He thinks he already has it. And Jesus is informing him, bro, you got some work to do. Jesus gets straight to the heart of it. You must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, well, how can a person be born again when he's old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? And I try to imagine Nicodemus asking this question, and I don't know how they portrayed it on The Chosen, I can't remember, kind of like, huh, Jesus, how can a man enter his mother's womb again? I'm thinking he's going, oh, how can a man enter his mother's womb again? <laughs> Maybe he's a little incredulous. He's kind of scoffing. I'm just wondering that he's thinking, Jesus isn't really telling me that i got to crawl back in my mother's womb and be born again. And, G and Jesus tries to, uh, replies to him, verse 7, Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be amazed by this. So the other thing about Nicodemus that's really curious, he's a student of the law. He's a student of the Old Testament. He's read David. He's read the prophets. He's read the Torah. He's read Moses. He should know that the man standing before him is the Messiah. But he doesn't ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. He, he might be curious, are you a prophet? Because look at all these cool things you're doing. But he doesn't even go, are you the Messiah? He sees, but he does not see. So he says, don't be amazed that I said you must be born again. And then verse 8, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is a mystery, you guys, to enter the kingdom of God, to see Jesus, to spend eternity with him you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is once again trying to be born of the flesh. 
What, I have to be born from my mother a second time? No, you've got to be born of the Spirit of God. It's like the wind. It's like the wind. It's a mystery how we are born of the Spirit of God. Uh, when I worked at Harris, I used to uh, witness to the engineers all the time. So I, would, I was out on the road a lot. And so when I had to call back home because the system was down, and the last thing you want when you're working at a newspaper 24-7 back in the day, in the 80s, the olden days when we had newspapers, we still do have them, I guess. But uh, they had to come out because the advertising was there. And boy, those advertisers wanted their ads in the paper before everybody got up and started their day. So it was a lot of pressure. Anyway, so the system was down. I would call back to talk to the engineers. And I would witness to this one guy named Jong all the time. He is um, Asian descent. And he was finally told me one day while we're rebooting the system and he's telling me what to type in. He goes, Rachel, I don't want to live forever anyway. I said, guess what, buddy? You don't have a choice. You are going to live forever. Your spirit man is eternal. You're just going to live in heaven or hell. You're going to have eternal life or eternal death. But some way, somehow, you're, I mean, you've got to figure it out, but you will live forever. So um, I don't know, uh, somewhere along the working process, I think maybe I left the job in 93, and so I didn't know what happened to Jong. I didn't know what happened to my stories and my telling him, you're going to live forever, it's either heaven or hell. And one day uh, when I went back to work, a bunch of us went to Atlanta Bread when it was up on Wickham, it had just opened, it's no longer there. And we walk in and we run into a bunch of people that we used to work with that now worked at another company. And there was uh, another engineer that worked with Jong. His name was Jeff. So it was always kind of like Jeff and Jong. They were always, I know it a little bit sounded like a cartoon, Jeff and Jong. And Jeff walks up to me and he goes, Rachel, I haven't seen him in years, guys. You ruined Jong. I'm like, I ruined Jong. I, I, don't, I don't even know where he is. What's happening with Jong? He's like, oh, he's all like going to church now and he's saved. And I'm like, yeah, oh, that's awesome. I didn't ruin him. But uh, apparently Jeff thought, Jeff thought that I had ruined him. I was thrilled to hear that. I don't know what happened. But he moved to Virginia, went to church, met a girl, got married. Hallelujah. Yeah. Being born again is a mystery. It takes God to love God. It takes the spirit of God to awaken our spirit so that we know this is what we need. I want eternal life. I want God living in me. Because it says... Uh, Paul tells us in Colossians 1.27, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's the mystery of the ages. We must be born again. We must have the Spirit of God within us. When I was six years old, my father was attending Oral Roberts University, and he was a youth pastor at a Methodist church in Tulsa. And um, I w we went to Sunday school back in the day. You had Sunday school in the morning, and then you went upstairs to church. And I'm six years old. It's November 1967. And I don't know what the Sunday school teacher said, but I know that I left that room going, I need Jesus in my heart. And I knew at six years old, I was a sinner. So I remember walking up thinking, I was pondering this, walking up to the main sanctuary. I grabbed my mom after church and go, I need Jesus in my heart. And so she said, okay, tonight we'll go um, to the altar after the evening message at the evening service. So I had to wait all afternoon to get Jesus in my heart. So at the, that night, as the pastor made the altar call, I look up at my mom, and I'm like, let's go. It's time. I'm a little sinner girl. I wanted Jesus in my heart. 
And I just remember kneeling at that altar going, I believe you, I believe you, please come into my heart. I forgive my sins, forgive my sins. How did a six-year-old girl know that? It's the mystery of the gospel. It's the Spirit of God woke up my heart. The Spirit of God woke up my heart. The Spirit of God will wake up your heart because you must be born again. I knew he loved me because he first loved me. So let's go back to Nicodemus here and Jesus. Jesus goes on. He's, he's debating. He's talking this over, how to be born again with Nicodemus. Let's go to verse 14. And Jesus tells him a story that Nicodemus would know well. It's out of Numbers. It's where the children of Israel, remember that they were slaves in Egypt for approximately, they were in Egypt for about 400 years. They were probably saved, slaves for two to 300 years. And the Lord has finally raised up Moses to be their deliverer, even though he didn't want to be. God proved to him that he could be, and he brought them out into the wilderness, and God was going to take them into the promised land. You guys know the story. Well, the children of Israel kind of got bummed about it because they didn't like it. So they start complaining about God and Moses and the disgusting food. Mmm, beets. They did not like the wilderness, and they did not like the beets. They did not like the food. All we have is beets. So, right? With some goat cheese. No. They're, they're out of slavery. They're out of slavery, you guys, but they're going, man, we were slaves in Egypt, but the burgers and fries were great. We want to go back there. God and Moses, what have you done to us? So God goes, well, I'll just show you. No, I'm, I'm sure that wasn't his heart, but God, he sent the fiery serpents among them, and the serpents were biting them and killing them. They were very poisonous, and now they're crying out for God and Moses to rescue them. So God tells Moses to create the serpent and put it on a pole. You guys know that's the modern medical symbol today. So verse 14, Jesus says to him, now Nicodemus would know this story. Nicodemus would understand the importance of that serpent being on the pole because it was a symbol of the Christ. So verse 14, and, Moses, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. So again, Nicodemus would know this as a teacher of the law. He would understand what Jesus was telling him that the Son of Man, me, must be lifted up like Moses lifted up that serpent, that all who look upon him will be saved. And then Jesus goes directly to the verse that we all know and love so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you understand now, Nicodemus? You must look upon me. I am the only one who can save you. I'm the serpent on the pole. Moses is speaking of me. God is demonstrating me in that wilderness experience that your fiery serpents, whatever it is, life that we now live, we don't necessarily have fiery serpents among us biting us, and, but we do have life trials. And sometimes, you guys, going back to words, we bring them on ourselves by the power of our words. Jesus is saying, look to me, I am the only way. This is the only way for you, Nicodemus, to have eternal life. The only way for you to come to the Father is through me. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. You, there's not. 
and we have the words of life within us. You can't get there from here. I found this great quote from a, an author, probably a theologian that I never heard of, but thank you for this quote, E.C. Hoskins from the Fourth Gospel. He said, there's no evolution from flesh to spirit. There is no evolution from flesh to spirit without the Spirit of God. We must have God to be saved. We must be born again. Since God gave everything for us, how can we respond with anything but wholehearted devotion? He gave everything. He gave his only son. Jesus gave up the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of heaven to come and take on flesh, be the word made flesh. He was there at the beginning when God said, let there be light. He was there. He was the word that made the light happen. It's God's plan. Jesus was the word and the Holy Spirit was the power that made it all happen. And he said, I love them so much, Father, that I will go down and rescue them. Christianity is the only faith where God became man, where God paid his own sacrifice with himself. All other religions are about us trying to become like gods or us trying to appease God. He goes, I'm going to appease myself with myself. It's the only world religion where God made the way for us himself. It's time to trade in our little puny bank accounts that we're hanging on to, my way of life, what I have, what I can do. It's time to trade those in for the riches of his bank account, guys. There's nothing that you have or that you can do, no reputation, no status that is worth hanging on to to deny a life with him. You can trade in all of your stuff. He'll give you himself. I would rather have God than all of the stuff, than all of the dreams and all of the reputation. I was reading about an author who, um, Jacqueline Suzanne, she wrote a famous book in the 70s called Valley of the Dolls, and she had cancer in her young 40s. And so she told God if he would give her 10 more years that she would become the world's greatest author. And she lived 12 more years. She died at 54. And she became a very famous author. But I thought to myself, that's not the bargain I would have made with God. If I got 10 more years, I'm going to run Mach 10 hair on fire for you because I'm going to have to face you someday. Well, here you go. You were the world's greatest author, but how are you and I? That just really impacted me that that was her kind of a bargain with God, and it actually happened. Now, I'm not suggesting we bargain with God, guys. It's probably a dangerous road to, to, to follow. But let's trade in what we have for what he has to offer us. There's no work of the flesh, no amount of goodness, no amount of success or even failure, no amount of education, no amount of money, that's going to give us eternal life apart from him because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Nicodemus actually thought he was A-OK because he had his works, he had his reputation, he had the status, he was a leading Pharisee. He wouldn't think that he needed anything else. He thought he was good. But the first thing that Jesus said to him was, you must be born again, Nicodemus. So you might be telling me, Rachel, this is great. We've heard this message since Sunday school. I'm already saved, but do you have the more of God? I want the more of God. 
Salvation isn't just like, oh good, I got my ticket, I'm not going to hell. It's about life and life abundantly, John 10.10. It's about overcoming sickness. It's about overcoming um, pain. It's about healing your heart from the wounds that life inflicts upon us. It's about finding out God's will for your life. Going to Eileen's point, everybody wants to know their identity. Everyone wants to know if they're living the life that God has for them. Everyone wants to know that they matter and that they have purpose. And the only way you're going to find that is in the salvation of Jesus. When I graduated from college, I didn't know what to do. So I kind of hopped around working for my sorority for a little while. And then I, I was, went back home to Tallahassee and I was working for this guy who sold jewelry. And I, I told this story before, but I think every jewelry store that I went into with his wares, those people were like, that poor girl. She doesn't know who she works for. <laughs> right? It just wasn't a good situation. And I was driving down the road one day and I was like, God, I've done everything I know to do to get a job. Put me where you want me. He was like, finally. And I've been here ever since. A month later, I moved to Melbourne, Florida, and, and I've been here ever since. I was waiting for that moment. I needed desperately to know his will for my life. When I was, like, in my mid-20s, I'm like, okay, God, the guys I like don't like me, and um, the guys I like me, I don't like. And if you guys had gone with me to the first singles group that I went to when Church on the Rock had a singles group, you would have known when I felt pretty, pretty, pretty sad about the prospects. <laughs> I said, Lord, I don't know who to marry. You pick. You pick. Because I'll pick the wrong guy, but you pick. And I think he did a pretty darn good job. (laughs) Actually, I used to have this dream that I would walk into the church getting married, and I would, like, see the guy at the altar, or I would get all the way to the altar, and I would look at him and go, no, and I would run out of the church. That one of those really annoying reoccurring dreams. After I met Tony, I never had that dream again. So, praise God. <laughs> you got to take his, his leading however it comes. All right, but we have to live with the power of God's in our, God in our lives. That's my point. Salvation is unto the power of God in our lives to help us to overcome. We have just gone through the season of fear. Maybe we're still in the season of fear with COVID. COVID introduced a lot of fear into our culture. And I have felt it. And part of my battle from like May on this year until probably a few weeks ago was battling various forms of anxiety and fear, irrational things. I literally felt the enemy's fiery darts. Like I would just be standing in the kitchen and a thought would come or I would see a situation or think of a situation. And it it felt overwhelming, you guys. It was just the enemy coming at me because he is the prince of the power of the air. But I battled it with my salvation with the word of God, I put on my armor, I picked up my shield of faith, I picked up the sword, and I've been quoting the same scripture verses for the last three months, as many times as I can think of it during the day. And I can tell you that my insides are changing. And I can tell you that I have the victory. I can tell you that the battle does belong to the Lord, but the victory is mine. I had to cash in on my salvation. Are you, trying, are you saved but trying to live in your own strength? How's your prayer life? How's your time in the Word? How much time you spend complaining and accusing 
or giving up? How much time do you spend on negative thoughts and emotions? And how often do you voice them? How much time do you give to worry and fretting and anxiety or anger or bitterness or lust or guilt or gluttony or self-pity? We shouldn't be giving ourselves to any of these things. We should be renewing our mind, Romans 12, 1. There's an estimated that we have, there's this wild idea that we have 80,000 thoughts a day. So I did the math, and that your mind would be like, <laughs> there's like no way you can have, if, if you don't sleep, and your mind is on like supercharge, you've had a whole bunch of caffeine, maybe you could have 60,000 thoughts a day. But I said, Tony, come on, let's do some math here. It's estimated you have 6,000 to 9,000 thoughts a day. But all of the places where I looked online, 80% of them are negative. This ought not to be, you guys. So we, we have, though, the salvation to us that we can renew our minds. We can renew our hearts. Those old memories can be renewed in, the, in Jesus. Those old wounds can be healed in Jesus. We have physical healing. We have mental and emotional healing. We have spiritual healing in him. So what are, what are we ingesting? If you're not ingesting the word, if you're not singing, praying, quoting, believing God's word, you will quote and believe, chew and ingest the philosophies of the world. There's a lot of the philosophies of the world invading the church. We need the philosophy of Jesus. We must be born again. Maybe there's this area of your life, you know what? That area of my life just needs to be born again. Beloved, we need to challenge the world with the word, not the word with the world. The word of God will stand forever, but this world is passing away. We must be born again. If you're saved, run after him daily. If you're not saved, if you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you were raised in church. But you're like, you know what? I kind of have always believed, but I don't think I've ever had the conversation with him. Be born again. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We must be born again. None of us are good enough to get there on our own, but Jesus graciously made the way for us. Amen? Let's have the band come up. So my challenge to us as we go back into worship is to sign up for Jesus. <laughs> Maybe there's an area of your life that you just haven't had victory over, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to sign up to start waging a war against this area of my life, and I'm signing back up for the salvation of Jesus in this particular area of my life. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never said, you can have me. I want your salvation. I want to spend eternity with you. Now is your time. Now is your time. The world is growing darker. And it'll be harder for some of us as, as time goes on. But the light is always with us. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the light of the world. Amen? The altar's open. If you want to come up here and pray and kneel, after a few minutes, maybe the ministry team could come up and just be available to pray with people. If you need healing in your body, if you need healing in your heart, mind, soul, whatever, please come up and have someone pray for you. Amen.